Let me say a word of welcome to all of our guests and visitors. If you're here, I want to remind you guys that uh, tonight is our state of the church, and I want to encourage you to be here. We usually don't do uh, Sunday evenings, and so when we do, we want to make them count. And so uh, we won't do these often. We'll do these two or three times a year um, where we will come together with our traditional service as well. Uh, we'll sing a little bit, uh, but more importantly, we're just going to talk a little bit about where our church has been over the past few years and, uh, more importantly, where we're headed. So we're going to talk vision and mission uh, and really, most importantly, in my mind, core values, which are what makes up our culture and what we want our culture to be. This morning, um, our text uh, in chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, and, and really verse 18 uh, this is a text that lays before us an issue of how to love unlovable people, more specifically by way of application, just what to do when we're in conflict and how do we, how do we wrestle with conflict uh, towards and with other people. Uh, I want to start by uh, just sort of sharing a little bit. I'm in a little bit of conflict this morning with uh, Matt Getty. Where's Matt at? Uh, he's somewhere in here. Matt, I was informed this morning, uh, you, we asked Matt to pray in the traditional service this morning, and so he came up. And then I had an older gentleman come up to me after the church service, and he said, uh, Pastor, um, I, I saw that Matt Getty has the very same shoes that you have on today. And he said, I need to know uh, if y'all coordinated and uh, who bought those shoes first. And so I just wanted to dispel the rumors. Uh, Matt has copied me. I'm not copying Matt to try to be hip and, and cool. And so we're in a little bit of conflict here uh, with, with dress attire. But it's one thing to be in conflict in that way. It's completely another issue to be in conflict just with people in general. People that we don't like, that we can't get along with, uh, that are unlovely or unlovable. Uh, years ago, I read about a major city in the United States, I won't say their name, except they're just due east here, pretty large city. Um, they said in their paper that they had solved uh, the world's predicament of the homeless problem and the homeless crisis in this particular city uh, that shall go without naming. They've resolved it. And the way they resolved it, if you clicked on the article, that their master plan uh, to solve the homeless problem in this major city was, and this is not a joke, um, they bought, they offered to buy and to pay these homeless individuals. They bought them a bus ticket and they paid a little bit of per diem and the bus ticket was a one-way ticket to another city to go and to live and to be homeless somewhere else. That was the answer. And I knew individuals who were in the police department of the city and I asked them, I said, what, what's going on? Is this for real? And they said, absolutely 100%. This is what we do to try to minimize the problem. And I thought how interesting that is. And, and it really got me thinking, man, what if I could do that with some troubling deacons in my church? Just send them <laughs> like, or perhaps... Maybe you read this and you were like, that's how we're going to get rid of the pastor. Send him with a one-way ticket and just sort of get, get rid of him. Wouldn't it be nice if we were honest, if we didn't have to deal with difficult people at times? People uh, were constantly in, in conflict. We're constantly seeking to resolve conflict and to work through conflict. Oftentimes I hear pastors and I hear ministers say mistakenly, they say, listen, um, you need to sort of uh, uh, detox your relationships from harmful and hurtful people. And it's one thing to remove yourself from people that are emotionally and physically abusive in your life. That's one scenario. 
but really is the posture of the gospel so much so that I need to remove myself just from people that I don't like or, or maybe exhibit characteristics from time to time that if we're just honest, <coughs> maybe they're just a little annoying, but they're not necessarily harmful, but they're difficult to love. And I think the gospel teaches something quite contrary than what I hear a lot of pastors well-meaning say that we need to remove ourselves from the context of difficult relationships at times. In fact, what I think the gospel teaches is the, actually the opposite. That we are called because God is a, is a loving God and because the idea of love is, is intertwined in his character, we are called to love very unloving people. And in fact, what the gospel teaches is because God is a God of love, we are called not to avoid those people, but rather to run to them and to embrace them and to seek to minister to them. Easier said than done, right? Well, I want to draw our attention beginning in verse seven and eight of our text this morning and notice with me up on the screens or if you have your copy of God's word where it says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows him. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. One of the first things that I want you to notice beginning in verse seven is I want you to notice how John makes this argument to the church that loving others shows evidence that we have been changed by the gospel. We are meant and called not just to have mere sentiment towards unlovely, un unlovely people, but rather we are to put on display publicly, not to, to brag about it or to draw attention, but we are called to demonstrate characteristics physically of love towards our brothers and sisters that may have differing opinions than us, that may line up on different political sides of the aisle, that maybe perhaps have a different theological spectrum, yet our posture should be that we should treat people in loving ways to demonstrate that we have been changed by the gospel. Now, throughout chapter four, verse seven, all the way through chapter five, verse three, John is gonna use this word love over 30 different times. And he uses a form of the word love in the text, and it's the form agape that many of you are familiar with. And, and what this form means and what it implies at a very basic level is this, is that when John talks about us being called to love other people in lovely ways, he's calling us to demonstrate a self-sacrificing type of love towards the individual that goes beyond the bounds of, of loving people, perhaps when it's convenient or loving people when we want to or the desires there. He's not speaking about a sentiment towards someone, but rather more specifically a lifestyle or a posture that the believer has to take upon towards those that they engage with specifically in the context of the local church. Now I want you to understand this this morning. Our greatest form of evangelism with people that do not know Jesus is not so much knocking on doors, though we should knock on doors. It's not so much trying to find our one and going on the street, that though we should go and find the one and go pursue those that are far from God. But by and large, throughout the New Testament, one of the things that John specifically teaches is that the world is watching, looking into the church and is watching how we treat and engage with one another as a form of evangelism towards them. So if we are treating one another in unloving ways or unlovely ways, the world watches that and they go, hey, wait a minute, 
I might find a sense of community or a sense of fellowship outside of, of a bickering group of individuals or even a denomination at whole or at large. And John teaches elsewhere that the world is going to know us based upon how we love and how we care for one another. Over 30 different times in the, in the next few verses does John reiterate this self-seeking, not this self-seeking, but this self-sacrificial type of love that we should demonstrate. One author describes this love in these verses in this way. He says, the love that John is talking about with the people, the love is, it's, it's like heat that comes from a fire. It's inseparable. You can't have fire without something being heated. It's the way that, that light is, is, is to the sun, that you won't have light without the sun. And this is the posture of God being love and this being intimately and intricately woven within his character and with its nature. It's a love that demands we not just love our friends, but we love our enemies and the people that oppose us or stand with values that, that would be quite different than us. I've been asked, one of the most common questions that I've been asked over the past three months or so that I've been here, and people will, will say often to me, Pastor, um, where can I serve? And I want to love people, but, but where do I do that? I, let me, can I get on this committee, or, or can I become this, or can I serve in this ministry? And, and listen, we're all for those things, and we want you to, but one of the things that I want you to grow, grow tired and weary of me saying over and over and over again, that the very best place for you to serve, to be known by people and to know people, is in the context of your circle. Whether your circle is on Sunday mornings or it's on Sunday evenings or whether it meets throughout the course of the week, this is where we care for one another. Whether it's our Sunday morning Bible fellowship or whether it's our community groups that are meeting on Tuesdays, like this is the place that we primarily give our lives and give our time and give our resources to serving that circle that God has given me. Now, I want to caution us uh, to this point that it's true that you can be in a community group and you can be in a Sunday morning Bible fellowship and still not necessarily be acting like a circle. You can still be in a row in your class if it's just about Bible study and it's not alongside that, this posture of one anothering and getting to know the people that are in your group. I have a senior adult group that's here in this church and, and they've taken to heart the idea of circles more than rows. And uh, one of the ladies was telling me on Wednesday night, is the, they've been coming here for, for decades and they started to think about this idea of circles more than rows. And so they started inviting people in their department to their houses and, and so we, we gather around the dinner table and we begin to talk and have these times of fellowship. And, and then one of the things that she said to me on Wednesday night, which was crazy to me, but I, but I think this happens more often than not. She said, I've known some of these people for 15 or 20 years and been going to the same church with them. I've been in the same department and even the same class. But until recently, when I had them over my home and was intentional in my questions and getting to know them, I know them better in the past three weeks than I've known them in the past 15 or 20 years combined. And she said, Pastor, the circle thing is, it's catching. Like it's, it's moving us. Thank you. And so that's, that's what it's supposed to be. Circles more than rows. We are demonstrating our love towards one another in the context of that. But we also see in verse eight, we see this, uh, what's in the Greek just called this negation, um, where, where it's showing evidence that, that we know it. And he states it in an opposite way where he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I mean, think about, 
the courage in which John writes, where he says, if you are not demonstrating a posture of love, you do not know God. Just that's it. Like that's a very bold statement for God, for John to make through God to his people. That if we're not walking in a posture of humility and love and compassion towards one another, John says it, you don't know God. Why? Because God is love. And and what we see in verses seven and eight, what I think sort of encapsulates this idea here is that because of the gospel of Jesus, we see demonstrated that Jesus sought the best for others, even at great expense to himself. This was the posture of, of our savior, that he sought after the welfare of those that he interacted with at great expense to himself. And if we have been changed by the gospel, if we have really been born again of the spirit of God, then we have to understand that the gospel should shape how we seek the welfare of others, even at the great expense to our own selves and to our own convenience and to our own priorities and and to our own families to our own friendships. The gospel puts us in this position where it expands our family. It should expand our friendship because we are seeking the welfare and the benefit of of others, oftentimes to the neglect of our own, not in its entirety, but to a degree, we demonstrate that we know God. But I want you to see in verse nine, as he begins to talk about the love of God and he makes this statement, he says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, the love of God was made manifest upon us that God sent his only son of the world that we might live through him. The psalmist said it a different way. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. The psalmist says this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Charles Spurgeon was known as the the prince of preachers, incredible rhetorician, incredible theologian. And he wrote of this verse and this this theme of love. He says, "I, I feel woefully inadequate and woefully shameful to put together any idea of words that I can come up with in the pulpit to describe how rich and how measureless the love of God is for those who love him and fear him. The prince of preachers, the most, one of the most eloquent men that, that ever wrote and, and spoke, uh, the, the prince of preachers, he, he says he felt woefully inadequate to describe and, and to illustrate for as high as the heavens are above the earth. And so I take that language, I know it's metaphorical, but I wanna, I wanna illustrate the point in verse nine, the love of God was made manifest among us. I wanna show you a picture here on the screen. That's a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. I'm gonna Louis Giglio you for just a second. How great is our God? Okay, so bear with me. That's a picture of the Milky Way. This is the galaxy that that we live in. Within that galaxy, our solar system is somewhere about right there. We're a little bitty speck. So somewhere in that speck is is our sun and all the planets in our solar system. Somewhere in that little speck is is planet Earth. Somewhere in that little speck is the United States of America, the the greatest country on Earth. And then perhaps the second greatest country on the Earth is Texas, okay? It's there. And then maybe the greatest city on Earth, Fort Worth. 
And then within that city, on the south side of Fort Worth, lies little old Travis Avenue Baptist Church into the present age. And here you sit amongst the vastness of, of that galaxy. And so the psalmist says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. Scientists say that if you were traveling at the speed of light to get to one end of the galaxy all the way to the other, it would take you at the speed of light 100,000 years to get from one end to the other. Now that's a long time in and of itself, and, and it becomes even longer if you happen to know the speed of light and how quick that actually is. And so if you're wondering what the speed of light is, I'm really glad you're asking that question because I know the answer to that question. Per second, this is how fast light travels. To illustrate that, what they say is, is that at the snap of a finger, at the snap of a finger, almost instantaneously, light travels so quickly at the snap of a finger, light can circumvent the globe upwards of six different times at the snap of a finger. That's how fast light moves. Now think about this. In, the, in, a, in an instant, light travels six times around the globe. They speculate that to go from one end of the galaxy all the way to the other, it would take you 100,000 years to get a part of it. This is just one galaxy in the midst of almost an infinite number of other galaxies that exist that somewhere we find our existence and our being in that. And you back up thousands of years ago where the psalmist says this, for as high as the heavens, as far as we know, are above the earth, so great. This is how vast and how deep and how wonderful God's love is for his people, for those that fear him. This is how wonderful it is. This is what Spurgeon didn't fully understand, but it's why he speaks of these words. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know how to illustrate it. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And for my Greek grammarians, many of you know this, but this word only is a Peculiar word, but it's an important word. In some translations, they wrongly translate it as begotten. I think only in the ESV and the NIV are the, the proper way to do this because what this word means, it means unique. It means one of a kind. It means there, there never will be, there never was something like this. There has been no one like Jesus, none can compare. And so God sends his only unique, one of a kind, there never will be son into the world so that we might live through him in all that we do. In this is love, not that we have loved God, that we are worthy of any of his affections and his, and his adoration towards us, but rather that he loved us and he loved us so much that he sends his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want you to look at your neighbor and say propitiation. Okay, that was cowardly and weak, all right? Look at your neighbor, say it with confidence. It's up on the screen, propitiation. Here's the deal. If you were to take Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, propitiation would be one of the top three or four most important words in all, three or four, one of the most three or four important words in the entirety of the Bible for his people to understand. 
It is life-giving. It is life-taking if we misapply it. And what this word means when he says that he sends his son to be the propitiation of our sins, in essence, it just simply means this atoning sacrifice, and it means to absorb wrath by means of an offering. So we know that God is a just God, and God is going to be required to punish sins because he's a holy God. And he's required to punish that. He's required to make that right. And so we see in moments where God's wrath burns oftentimes towards his people and those that walk in disobedience. But I used to believe for a, for a long point of, my, point of my life that God was still angry at me and he, and he was still waiting to punish me and to mess me up. And then I began to understand what propitiation means. And here's the deal that some of you, I think you really need to hear this this morning. God is not angry or mad at you anymore. He's not wrathful towards you. Why? Because all of that anger, all of that malice, all of that wrath, that, that he had to punish sin because he's holy and righteous and just, he has absorbed and taken out all of that in its entirety on Jesus. Because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we should have died. In other words, what you've heard me say over the past few weeks, it just simply means this, that propitiation in sort of a, a common vernacular, we could just simply say this, Jesus in my place. He was the man that stood where, where I should have stood and he died the death that I should have died. And the Bible teaches that God's wrath because of propitiation was satisfied on his son, Jesus. But I want you to see also in the text as it begins to move on. I want you to see in verses 11 and 12 how John talks about this idea of loving people in the context of a process. And he uses a word in the ESV perfected. It's translated out of there. And I want you to see how love is perfected in us when we love one another. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here's the deal. When he uses words that, that seem to sort of make this case that something happens and then we're being moved forward, has ongoing implications into the future. Listen, the day that you give your heart to Christ, that's not the end. That is just the beginning. Like that's the starting point to this lifelong process of, of discovery and knowing and, and pressing in and pursuing intimacy with the Father and knowing Christ as he's been revealed. And he says, the more you, you demonstrate and show that you're loving other people as well as loving your God, that God's love in you and his work in you is being perfected. It's what theologians just call this, this, you're being sanctified, made holy. You're being made into something. And there's this idea that, that sort of permeates Christianity and it's really a false idea. And they'll say, listen, God loves you just like you are. That, that's not true. God loves you because of what Christ has done for you and on your behalf. And he loves you so much that he's like, hey, listen, I don't want you to stay the same. In fact, my, my vision for you, God says, and, and my word and my dreams and my desires for you are much greater than your dreams and desires and your longings. Like I have a much better plan and a purpose for your life. 
And I love you because of what Christ has done for you and on your behalf, but I love you too much that you will stay and just wallow and shortchange yourself in that sin or in that improper behavior that I want to see you become. God's goal is to see you come and become like Christ. To see you transform. Like, think about it this way. I've been married to Haley for, for 15 years, almost 16 and, and we've grown up. We, were, we, we married right out of college. And I look back on some of those pictures when I see myself, I'm like, man, we didn't know anything, anything. How, how foolish and, and young you know, we, we were, but how wise we thought we were, right? If I was the same person today that I was 15 or 16 years ago when we got married, we wouldn't have much of a relationship today. Both of us, because of marriage and walking together, we've both changed. We've become different people over the course of time. We've not compromised and we've not, we're not sellouts. We've not given up our values, but, but we've become, in essence, we've tried to because we've been together with one another. We've tried to pursue Christ together and alongside each other so that we're different. I, I don't want to marry the 21 or 22-year-old Haley. Like, I want the Haley now. This, this, I'm not going to tell you about how old you are. I guess you don't care. 37 or 38. Boom, everybody knows. <laughs> it's a common question. People ask me how old I am. I typically go, how old's Haley? Oh yeah, I'm this old. And so that's how I remember how old I am at times. But we've changed. Hopefully it's gotten richer. And even in marriage, it's not the same that it was when we first got married that first year. God loves us and he cares for us. But his desire for us is to become the people that he, that he wants us to be. If you notice in verse 12 of the text, he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And this word seen that exists there, it's, it's this idea of, of careful observation and examination. It's this idea of, of putting something under a, under a microscope to, to see it and to examine it. And he says in verse 12, listen, no one before Christ has really seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And this love that we couldn't see before at one point is now perfected in us. And you say, well, what does that mean? This idea of seeing, seeing something and, and observing something, but, but now he's perfecting that very thing in us. And, and it's sort of summarized with this idea that the gospel is the unseen God once revealed in his son, Jesus, and is now being revealed to his people through his people as we love and care for one another. Like this is the logic of the text as it moves forward. The unseen God revealed in Jesus. Now Jesus, the hope of glory being revealed through his people as ambassadors and co-heirs with him. As we, notice, as we love each other, this is how we display the majesty of Christ. Now I wanna end with, with two thoughts and two questions. One, really test, I guess, more or less. To reiterate what happens through verse 12, the idea is this, is that we know that we know God because of how we're loving each other. So here's the $100 question for the week that your pastor had to wrestle with. How are we doing loving people? How are you doing personally? I'll brag on our church just a little bit as a whole because in, in some pockets we've done this extremely well. We had two funerals this week two dearly beloved men in the life of our church, 
that, that passed last Sunday and, and then um, prior to that. We had funerals on Wednesday. We had a funeral on, on Saturday. And these were men that, that deeply loved Jesus. And I was really proud, extremely proud of our church because at both funerals in both places, like our church showed up in force for people that many of the world would, would deem un- unlovely. And in certain time places and in certain areas would be cast aside and, and thrown aside, but you were there and you cared and you made the phone calls and you wrote the notes and you touched base. Like that's, it's loving people. It's caring for one another. But beyond that, and whether you knew those men or, or knew not of them, how are you doing in your care in your circle and loving and being present and reaching forward? How quickly are you, are you in this posture of, of love is demonstrated by a posture of, of forgiveness oftentimes. It's demonstrated in a posture of sacrifice. We're talking about the agape love, this, this sacrificing kind of love that is demonstrated towards people. This is the love that he's talking about. His love is being perfected and demonstrated in us. Listen, we, we live in a victim culture that loves, absolutely loves to nurse the wounds and hurts that we receive. We love it. One of the gentlemen that passed away and did his funeral yesterday was a guy named Perry. And Perry was in his 80s and he had cerebral palsy, was born with it. And the world would say, this is a very unlovely guy that, that has no redeeming qualities, except for the fact that when Perry, in 1948, here in Fort Worth, Texas, Perry gave his life to Christ. And he committed his life to serving Jesus all of the rest of his days. And it's the common question that Perry would regularly ask, and I've known him for a long time, and many of you have known him much longer than me, that Perry's regular question that he would ask his pastor and friends is, how can I serve in my church? What can I do to help other people? One pastor remarked, and somebody told me this morning too, and I would reiterate this, that if what, what would our church would look like if it was full of, of seven to 800 Perrys who just lived in the posture of serving other people. And, and here's the thing about Perry. He could have nursed his wound of cerebral palsy and let it become his identity. But if you knew Perry well, you knew this, that, that wasn't who Perry was. In fact, his identity was deeply rooted in the fact that he knew Jesus and wanted to imitate Christ no matter what he was able to do physically. He didn't care. That's incredible. It's a, it's a wonderfully marvelous thing to sort of think about, especially in a posture where, where in a culture where so many are just carrying and nursing wounds. And, and listen, I'm not le- delegitimizing legitimate hurt, with, whether it's abusive behavior, uh, physically abusive behavior, spiritually abusive behavior, emotionally abusive. I, I'm not minimizing those things. But irregardless of, of, of where you are and just you have conflict with people that, that maybe said something or didn't do something for you that you like, don't let those wounds become your identity. Don't let them keep you from serving in humility and loving other people. You cry and you weep and you grieve and you receive the right kind of counsel and wisdom. And then at some point along the journey, and maybe you have to do this regularly, you cry deep tears because God doesn't waste our tears and you grieve properly. But at some point you wipe the tears from your eyes and you look to the hope of the gospel for God to restore you. 
and to be reconciled and to walk in freedom, whatever the hurt, whatever the wound is, whatever the addiction might be. But we know that we know God because of how we love others. But the second test is found in verse 18. We know that we know God because God's love has driven out our fear. Look with me at verse 18 where it says this. In the context of loving other people, he says, there is not fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I had a young lady tell me several weeks ago, as we wrap this up, she said, um, you've been talking about sharing the gospel with people far from God. To be truthful, I'm terrified of doing that. So it's okay, me too sometimes. Depends on who I'm talking to, where I'm at, what the circumstances are. I said this to her in return. I said, listen, you've got to view the idea and the posture of loving people. One of the most loving things that you can do as a Christian is to tell someone who is far from God about the hope of the gospel. And I said, if by chance you happen to be trapped in a burning building and death was imminent, the smoke had filled the room, you started to feel the heat from the fire. And if by chance, let's just pretend that you got out of the building, you navigated your way down some stairs, you, you made your way down a corridor, you found safety outside, outside of the building and you were saved. You would be able to recall what you did and how you did it and when you did it. You would be able to tell that story of how you escaped from the fire. Your testimony is the same thing. You're just simply telling God's story through years, how a loving, kind, gracious God redeemed you of your sins, whatever that circumstance was. And this is what God did in my life and, and he saved me. And this is how my life has changed because of that. I have a new perspective. I have peace in my heart. I'm not in conflict with people constantly. I have compassion towards people that I don't know. I have this supernatural Holy Spirit filled ability to, to love unloving people. You're just telling that story. I want nothing more than for our church over the next 30 years that I get to be your pastor, that we begin to, to change and to re-navigate and to reorient our hearts towards not just holding on and maintaining what we've got, but rather going after and pursuing people who are far from God and do not know him. There is much more satisfaction in walking with Jesus when we're on mission like that. And when we put on our boots and, and we say, listen, I'm gonna go, go and get them. The gospel, my friend, is not come and see, but the gospel is go and tell. That's what Jesus says. And we demonstrate that we are known and know God and that we love other people. And the most gracious, loving thing that we can do is to tell someone about Christ. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Here's how we're gonna end this morning. There has been no great awakening or movement from God apart from his people praying. And I think some of us this morning, we need to reorient our hearts around the things that God's heart is oriented around. Specifically in the context of, of people that are far from him. People that are far from God. 
And so here's what I, I want to end today. One, if, if you don't know Christ, I, I want to be down front. I would love to visit with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you say, I'm a seeker, I'm, I'm here, I'm far from God, I'm lost, I don't, whatever the terminology is, like, I want to know Christ and, and, and the riches of his love. And I want to visit with you about what it means to have a relationship with him. But if you know Christ and you're a part of this church, let me just say this to you. Here's what, here's what we need to do on our part. Corporate worship is meant to be done corporately. We do it together. It's meant to be seen. It's meant to be encouraging. And so I'm gonna ask that you lay aside anyone guessing your motives, reading into your motives, like put all that, that pride away. And here's what I want. I, I just wanna see our people and our hearts cry out to God that God would use us to reach people that are far from him. He'd give us a, a burden, almost an unhealthy burden for those that don't know him. So in a moment, I'm gonna start praying and I'm, I'm gonna ask you to join me down at this altar to pray with me. As a visible sign, I know you can pray where you're seated and, and that's fine too. But when we come down here, it's, it's symbolic. It's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. I'm, I'm going with you. We're on the same page. I, I want the same things. And we're moving forward, pursuing those that are far from it. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna pray, spend some time in corporate prayer, and our team's gonna lead us on the back end of our service. Pray with me, Father in heaven, we pray now that your spirit would move in our hearts. Let us long for the things that you long for. We know according to your word that you want those that are far from you to be saved. Help us be on mission this week. Help us put on our boots and get up and go get them. Help us be faithful, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. You stand and you respond as the Lord leads.